0: We are in Genesis chapter 13 this morning, and we are studying the life of Abraham, so if you're looking for something else, either change rooms or be content. <laughs> All right, we're in Genesis chapter 13. I want to point you, if you missed it, on the way in, we do have the, uh, the study outlines for today, so if that would be of any help to you, you can go ahead and pick one of those up. Um, one of the things you're going to see right away is, and I, I tried to tell you this last time with... Only 11 teaching lessons in this particular quarter, see because Easter falls really early this year on the last Sunday of March, and that's a five-Sunday month, so uh, I think Pastor Cameron's going to reserve one of those Sunday schools for uh, the elder group meetings like we've done. Uh, So that only gives us 11. Well, that means we have to hustle even more. So what I've done this morning, um, although it's amazing if you look at these things sometimes and you pray about them, how they work out, Um, I think you'll find that even though we have two chapters to cover this morning, there's a commonality between the chapters, even though the stories are different, Uh, and uh, there's a theme that I'm going to be pursuing in this, and it's one that I kind of prepared you for last week. Um, You're going to be seeing a lot of this, and that is tests to our faith. The lesson this morning is entitled, The Pilgrim Pathway, and what we're going to do is, is read chapter 13 to start too much to read two chapters all in a row, so um, we'll read chapter 13, look at that and see what's there, and then we'll hopefully have time to get into chapter 14 and see what's there. But just bear in mind, um, this is one of those times where even though it's really tempting because there's a lot of stuff you could kind of slow down and, and get involved with, we can't do that or we won't cover the ground. And I've had people tell me before, don't worry about that. just. You know, slow down. The same people, when you get to the end, you don't cover everything. Say, oh, we didn't get... So, anyway, Genesis chapter 13, I'm going to read verse 1 and then following. So Abraham went up from Egypt. So that's where we last saw Abram was in Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot went with Abram, uh, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, or as the King James says, brethren, is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, Thus they separated from each other, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners before the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give you to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord." Gracious Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine that we're experiencing. And Lord, we do know for other folks in other parts of the country, they have some rough and difficult weather, either that's already transpired Friday and Saturday, or that's yet to unfold in the early part of the week. So uh, we just ask for your people in particular as they gather today, that uh, the cold may not inhibit their worship, that they may be able to, to come to your house that you'll give journeys, mercies, and protection. And then for people in general, Lord, we pray that you give wisdom to those authorities that have to make decisions, airlines that have to make decisions, all these types of things. Uh, we're grateful that you oversee it all and that you can be looked to for wisdom in these things. And so we acknowledge that. Now, Lord, as we come to your word here in ABF, we pray that you bless our class. We pray that you'd be with uh, the other classes as well and guide and direct. May uh, the Lord suit a blessing for each heart and just give us attentive Lord. We know that each of us brings all kinds of burdens and, and, and things that could certainly distract us and take us away from what you've brought us here for. So I pray that you will not only work through me, I'll say the things that you want to be said to meet needs that are here today, whether I know them or not. Uh, and also, Lord, for us as we listen so that we would <clears throat> be looking to you and realize that you've appointed this time and brought us here for this purpose. We commit these things to you now, asking that the word of the Lord may be glorified and have free course. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. All right, the pilgrim pathway. So there are two things, two separate stories that are going on here. First of all, in chapter 13, we learn about Lot, the selfish nephew. Now, we've seen Lot's name before, okay? But this is where we really begin to get an insight into the character of Lot, and you know, as I thought about this and thought about it, of course, you know, Lot is a subject that comes up in Scripture, and Scripture draws various lessons uh, from Lot. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I just don't know that I have much good to say for Lot. And I, then I thought to myself, well, does that hold water scripturally? And I, the only thing I could think of that's really positive to say about Lot is is that Peter does acknowledge that he was righteous and that as he finally took up living in Sodom, he vexed his soul with the, with the ungodly deeds of the wicked people there. So I guess we can say that, but other than that, what we see in this chapter is not real flattering. That's chapter number 13. Then we come to chapter 14, which we'll read in just a little while, but we have the story of Melchizedek. Now there's something you could really bog down and spend time because he's the mysterious king. And this is where he walks onto the pages of scripture. And other than that, you have a couple of references in the Old Testament that talk about the priesthood for the Messiah being after the order of Melchizedek. You don't have any other historical references or stories to Melchizedek. He's not introduced earlier, he's not described later, except till you get to the New Testament. And the author of the Hebrews has something more to say about him. Other than that, we don't really know anything about Melchizedek. So mysterious is not a bad word, but uh, we'll see something that ties these stories together, and hopefully it'll be a blessing to each of us today. So what's going to tie them together is Lot is in both, and he's central to both in some ways, but at the same point, what we're seeing here is renewed testing to Abram's faith. You remember where, and I tried to emphasize this when we read verse number one, so Abram went up from Egypt, and when we last saw Abram there, I mean, he went there because of testing, he went there because there was famine in the land. And God had told him to leave Ur the Chaldees, and God had told him to come into the land of Canaan, and he gets there, and from all practical intents and purposes, he hasn't been there too terribly long, and then famine comes, well, that's a real trial, what's, what's going to become of me? And it's, it's really easy in academic folks for us to sit here this morning and say, well, you know, he should have had faith. Well, yeah, he should have, and so should you and I, but a lot of times we don't. What would he have had faith in? Well, he would have had a faith that God's going to take care of it because all the promises were contingent on him being in the land, and certainly they weren't contingent on him dying of starvation. That would have been counterproductive, obviously, to what God had promised him. But the truth of the matter is, if you were in that situation and you were casting about trying to figure out what's the right move to make, I gotta take care of my family here and my flocks. Well, who's to say? I mean, uh, Elimelech and Naomi. Were facing that situation. and they went to Moab and nothing in the scripture condemns that move. So I want to be real careful about just jumping on Abram with both feet here, although as I said to you last week, he gets down there and certainly makes a mess of things. But this testing business, it comes to the fore again, and it comes in chapter 13, in the person of this selfish nephew. So, The thing that I think is the spiritual lesson in verses 1 through 4 is is that you find Abram once he realizes that he's made a mess and and, you know through Pharaoh God has kind of dealt with him about this thing and he realizes that he's gotten careless he's gotten away from the Lord what does he do about it and he returns to the land but he returns to a specific place I tried to emphasize some of these words that are important when I was reading this, but look at verse 3 again. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel. Why did he choose Bethel? Well, he chose Bethel because that was where he last built an altar, where at the beginning his tent was between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. So if we go back to chapter 12, let's take a look at the reference to this there were two altars. When he first came into the land, verse number seven says he built an altar in the area of Shechem. But then he moved down to this Bethel Ai area and I wanna uh, read verse eight. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord and Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev. So at least from what we read in the story, And using the geographical kind of as a a launching point for a spiritual application, this is the last record of where he built an altar and he's worshiping the Lord. He he certainly doesn't build the altar in Egypt that we're aware of. And the point that I'm trying to make from all of this is, you know, when we find ourselves having gotten away from the Lord, you find Him where you left Him. You know, it's just like, I remember the story hearing years ago about the farmer driving down the road in the pickup truck. His wife was with him, and she was sitting over on the passenger side. And she spoke up, and she said, Honey, we don't sit together as closely as we used to. And he looked at her, and he said, Yeah, well, I haven't moved. So you do sort of have to remember God doesn't move. God is always faithful, and so if we stray... Well, a lot of times it begins to show up in things like we get careless about our Bible reading, we get careless about our prayer life, we get careless about our devotion, our church attendance. And when you get right with the Lord, then you tend to get right back to those things because that's where you find your relationship with the Lord cultivated. So I think there's a spiritual lesson that we can draw from this. But now... What he has done now is to renew his fellowship with God. Call it revival, call it renewal, whatever you want to do. This is important to him. He's very serious about wanting to get back into fellowship with God and realizes that there's been a lapse. So what happens when you make a spiritual decision for the Lord? Well, invariably, it's tested. It's just kind of the way spiritual life is. I wish I could tell you differently because I'm not standing in line for testing either. But I also know that it's kind of the warp and woof of spiritual walking with the Lord. And so let's talk about these people because we're going to see two people here and two people in chapter 14. And in both cases, they're they're almost like polar opposites. Think of it that way for a moment. These two men, who are they? Abraham and Lot. And they couldn't be more different. Why do I say this? Because... You look at Lot and again, there's just nothing positive here to say. He's he's the very essence, he's the epitome of selfishness, unbelief, and worldliness. None of those is good words, but every single one of those words fits. Let me try to explain this to you. So, There's a, a really interesting thing that is said. Verse number 10 says, Lot lifted up his eyes. Verse number 14 said, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. So we're gonna have a little contrast between these things because right now we're gonna talk about when Lot lifted up his eyes, what did he see? Well, you remember when Abram was so graciously making this offer, hey, we shouldn't have this strife. You know, not only the Canaanite and the Perizzites are around us and that not only made it, that detail I think is supplied to us for a couple of reasons. That's at the end of verse number seven. I think that detail is supplied, first of all, to give us some indication that there was some difficulty sustaining all of these different people and their livestock. That was a, a fair statement. But I think it's also given us maybe for us to realize that Abraham or Abram has a little bit of sensitivity. He's, he's a follower of Jehovah, and these Canaanites and Perizzites are not, and it's just not, it's not a good look. Just as it's not a good look when churches start fighting and splitting. That's not a good look before the world. So that's what he means, I think, in part when he says, for we are brethren or kinsmen, as it says. Well, look at this, what, what, what Abram, so Abram out of his magnanimity, got into a tongue tie there, offers Lot, hey, you choose which way you want to go. And notice how he frames this, because I, again, I think these geographical type notes, they're easy to miss, but sometimes they have some potency to them. Verse number nine, he says, if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Why do they say that? Isn't that kind of a a weird way to put it? No, not really so much, because when you find that in the Old Testament, so here's what's happening, I have no idea which way east is, so I won't try to illustrate that. But that's typically how it was done, so let's just say H is east. So if I look to my left, it's north. If I look to my right, it's south. The point that I really want you to get right now is what he says to him, even if it's just an expression, is he says, he's expecting that Lot will choose to go either north or south. I think that there's some reason for that. It unfolds because when Lot lifts up his eyes, what does he see? He looks east. He doesn't look north or south. Abram doesn't look east. There's a reason. Not that he's ignorant of what's there. He knows what's there, and he's looking to stay on the pilgrim pathway, just as you and I should. It's the sights of the world that allure and that tantalize, and it's Lot's unbelief, his inability to believe that, to to grasp the the vision and the promise like Abraham does, that, look, these guys over here might have the well-watered plain, but it's not where I want to be. It's not where I want to be physically, it's not where I want to be spiritually, and God will honor that choice because it's a choice made because of Him. That's faith. But to lift up your eyes and to see the sights, see, to walk by sight, which is what's going on here because He sees the tangible. He sees the things that make a lot of sense if you're just looking at it from the standpoint of worldly values or worldly wisdom. And that's what he chooses for. And I make the statement, he's apparently more interested in cities than tents. And it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that he didn't have enough tents. Look at verse five, Lot who went with Abram had also flocks and herds and tents. He had tents, but when he looked towards the east and he saw the well watered cities of the plain and it makes the comment, this is kind of uh, distinct here verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, that's the land of promise, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So Apparently, he was more impressed with city life. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with cities, but I think we all know there's some peril that goes with those places and you have to be on guard spiritually and mind your manners and keep close to the Lord. You remember, I was thinking again, it's, it's been a long time since i really heard this, but remember the little song, This World is Not My Home, I'm Just a Passing Through? My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me and... Yeah, heavens, there you go, Brother Langford, heaven's open door. I'm trying to read my own writing. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I have write it down anymore because I don't trust my memory. But... That, to me, epitomizes and captures Abram, not Lot. He's the opposite of that. It turns out this world is my home. I ain't just passing through. I'm gonna settle down. So it's not very long before we find that Lot in chapter 14 is dwelling there. So I say these guys can't be, but I will tell you this. He chose that for himself and he made the worst decision of his life. That's just something to think about, and I I can't bog down here, but I just know through years of ministry, I tried to be on guard with this. In fact, I remember when, when we left Illinois, and it was time, I felt the time was right to go into the pastorate. I had been on staff at a large independent Baptist church in Illinois, and I felt the time was right, and one of the things as I started looking at churches and getting you know, having my name sent to them and getting their uh, information sheets. I'd look to see if they had a Christian school, either the church or the town. Does it have a Christian school? If it's not in the town, is it close enough for my kids to go? Just because I was concerned about that and I wanted my kids to have those values reinforced. I'm not saying public school is wrong. Don't read that into this. I'm just saying that was a factor in my thinking. And so, when we got information about the church at Huntingdon, and they had a Christian school, that that caught my attention. And uh, Lot, it has been said, chose a great place to raise cattle, and a sorry place to raise kids. And it's worth thinking about, because I've seen, over the years, so many people, you know, they get a job offer, or they get this or that, and I know Christians differ on some of these decisions, so I'm not trying to, 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 to cast a stumbling block in front of someone or draw a line in the sand. I'm just saying, they, you know, what appeals to them and what they look at is the money and the location and all these things, and that's, there's nothing wrong. You do have to look at those things, but if that's all you look at, did you see whether or not they've got a good church there? If you have kids, you at least should look at the public schools and see what their reputation are, and maybe you want to go beyond that and find out if you think Christian education is right or homeschooling or whatever. But you know these things really need to be thought through and prayed through. So Abram, on the other hand, I said they were opposites. He's the quintessential pilgrim. That's why I call this the pilgrim pathway. That's where he stays. He dwells in tents. You You don't ever read anything about Abram? Now, the record's silent. But you don't ever read anything about Abram building anything except altars. He does build altars. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And you can see that in those verses, but um, this is something that the New Testament singles out. Uh, Let me go back. I had the verse at the bottom. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. This is Abram as in a foreign land. Look at this, living in tents. Because tents are temporary. Because if you get a reservation in a motel, you're not looking to stay there permanently, especially if the beds are like most of them, you know, but that's just a temporary thing. And if you go camping on the weekend, you're not looking to live in that tent permanently. It's a temporary thing and that's, we can't get into this, but 2 Corinthians 5, which God willing, we will at another time, not today. Not even in this series, but in a different thing. Where our bodies are likened unto tents. Because they're temporary. It's where we are now, but it's not permanent. It's not the body that we'll have eternally. So, living in tents with Jacob and Isaac heirs with him of the same promise. Lots of horse of a different color. So when Abraham lifts up his eyes, what does he see? Verse number 14, he sees God's promise. God is the one who tells him, and here's the promise. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. Do you notice all four directions are mentioned there? And the promise is that the land is going to be his. This is the first time God tells him, I'm going to give you. Back in chapter 12, when God told him about the land, he just says, go to a land that I'm going to show you but now it becomes very personal. Verse number 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Something to think about. I'm going to say more about that next week, so I'll have to hold my fire now because there's more to do today. And chapter 15 lends itself a little bit more to that than uh, where we are now. But we'll come back and notice that. So He lifts up his eyes, he sees God's promise. Lot lifts up his eyes and he sees well-watered plains. He lifts up his eyes and he sees not the tangible and not the temporal. He sees the eternal and the spiritual. And that's what we have to constantly strive for because we're in this world but we're not of this world and our values are different. And I would also make one other point before we go or I guess maybe there's two thoughts left. But one is... How can he afford to be so magnanimous? How can he afford to be so generous? Because he's a man of faith. How can you afford to be generous when it's time to write the offering check? You can be if you believe God. What kind of believing God are we talking about? Well, I guess not here is not where I have the verses. It's in the next thing. So we'll get to that eventually, but He can be generous because he has God's promises. If you believe, here's a promise that you have, right? Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You believe that when you get your paycheck? Can you write a check for the tithe and not sit there and have anxiety about it? Well, you know, I'm just saying we can be generous when we trust God. But Lot's not that way, which is why he's selfish. All right, we gotta move. So here's kind of the, the point about the testing. It often follows spiritual decision. He makes that decision to get out of Egypt where it's a debacle, to get back to Bethel where the altar is, and to get back into fellowship with God. And very soon, very shortly, he's got the person who's probably number one on his prickly person list. And I guarantee you, everybody in here has got one, or ten. And sometimes they're in the family, and I'm not, <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm not going to, I'll just say it, but sometimes it is. And yeesh, I think that's where it's, lots of times, the most difficult. All right, so let's move along. The mysterious king. 3 chapter 14. A little longer, but it's worth getting into. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Alasar, Kidor Laomer, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, or nations, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that's Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea. Twelve years they had served Kedor Leomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnium, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavi and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazus on Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of zeboim and the king of Bela, that's Zoar, went out and they joined in battle in the valley of Siddam, with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Alasar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits. Mm, That's interesting. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into some of them. That doesn't help you much. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. The next verse is going to tell us why all that battle was interesting to us and why it's important to God. They also took Lot. Well, he got his comeuppance pretty quickly, didn't he? They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom. didn't take him long. And his possessions and went their way. See, this story, which is basically just a run-of-the-mill battle, military engagement, becomes important because of the players, and the players are Abraham and Lot. And that's why we're this is brought to our attention. All right, they took also Lot. Verse 15. Then one of the one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and of Aner, so these were allies, or the King James says confederates, so these guys were all confederates. They had an an alliance or an agreement together. All right, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house. This is interesting, 318, so you, you think about Abram's possessions. ever think about what it takes to move around 318 people? Just think about it for a minute. And went in pursuit as far as Dan, that's 140 miles from where he was in Hebron. And as he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, that's another hundred miles north to Damascus, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And his return from the defeat of, after his return, after, after, just note that word for a moment, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shave, that is the king's valley, there Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, so no introduction, it's just like it's a fact. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. By the way, he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, that is Abram. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is a long time before Moses and the law, right? Just saying. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, that is Jehovah, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So other than the tithe he gives to Melchizedek, what the guys ate, and the share for the, his allies, his confederates, he doesn't tell. Now, the reason that I emphasize the word follow, the word after is because this is when what's of key interest to us happens. When does this decision that Abram has to make, it follows a victory, a significant victory? All right, let's just have a look. So if you're wondering what in the world are all those crazy names, how long do you have to practice to read those? (laughs) All right, so if you start with Shinar, you're basically down there, see on the on the right, you're basically down there in the Babylon area. This is a long ways. I'll tell you why these guys had an interest though. So then you come up and you've got Elasser, Goyim. Some of these places were, were relatively clear on others were not, but there's three of them right there. Now, you you see where they are. This is kind of the Mesopotamian thing, you know, where you've got the Fertile Crescent and they come down on the other side. They didn't travel, they didn't travel straight across because Uh, It's desert. And you'll notice how they come down. What are they doing? Well, they're actually following what you have a reference in Scripture in the book of Numbers, two references to the king's highway. Remember this? When Moses was taking the children of Israel on the journey to the promised land, he asked the Edomites and the Moabites, can we, we'll just stick to the road and we'll pay for what we drink and anything we eat. Wait, can we pass through your land on the King's Highway? What's the significance of the King's Highway? The trade route. So, these guys who had previously subjected these five kings of the plain, Bera and that crowd, the king of Sodom and that crowd, those guys decided after 12 years, tired of paying taxes to these people and we're tired of working for them, and we're going to throw off the yoke. Well, after a year or so, here they come, and they had, they had business to take care of along the way, because you notice they took care of the Rephaim and a bunch of others. I mean, basically, as they're coming down, there's your Ashteroth Carnium, a little further to the north. It's hard to see all those things. They're not quite as big as maybe we'd like them, but that, they're taking care of business, and they finally get down there to Elot, which is, you see right there on the Dead Sea. See that? At the bottom, on the right, where the lines are. Then they turn around, and what do they turn around? They go back and go up. Now we're going to take care of these guys that caused us a problem, the five kings. And they join in battle. Well, what's interesting is it's after that that it's showtime. It's spiritual showtime. And once again, you've got two people that couldn't be more different. You've got Bera and you've got Melchizedek. What's Bera like? That's his name, by the way. It's mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, so I'll just call him Abraham. Well, he's wicked. We know that. It says the men of Sodom were wicked before the Lord, sinners exceedingly. And the offer that he makes to Abram is one that appeals to pride and one that appeals to greed. Take the goods for you. You can have all the goods, just give me the people. You can have all the goods, Well, Abram sees through that. He sees where that ultimately leads. It leads in giving the king of Sodom kind of a leg up, a leverage as it were, that he can claim, Hey, I, I made this guy what he is. Abram doesn't want any part of that because Jehovah is the possessor of heaven and earth and Jehovah is the one who gave him the victory. So. This is an appeal to pride. Look at this big conquest I just made, and the king of Sodom is acknowledging that, and I'm, I'm a hero. Well, in some ways, he was. I mean, you go chasing after these guys that defeated the Rethium and all that crowd. I mean, their campaign was victorious until they started messing around here. And they were, in fact, they were victorious in everything they did, even the five kings, and it was only as they went, were on the journey back home that somebody comes over and tells Abram, Abram says, that can't stand. And he gets his allies and they go out, I don't know how many people they had. He had three hundred and eighteen, which are trained, the King James says armed. You can do what you want with that. But he gets them, and then I don't know how many Ainer and Amer and, and all that crowd brought to the table, but this guy's this guy's not bad. I mean, he figures out that the you know, we're under we're underpowered here, but God is on our side, just like David was underpowered. With Goliath, but God was on his side. But there's still a way to go about doing business, and he's smart about this thing. He, he attacks them at night, which typically they didn't fight in the ancient world. In fact, they did, typically didn't fight until somewhat recently in the modern world. You know, in the war between the states, you typically just didn't fight at night. Not like it is now. But anyway, they have airplanes and stuff flying around in the dark. You could do that. But this is, that's what this is. This is, what, this is who Beer is. But Melchizedek. All right. Look at the last five letters of his name, Z-E-D-E-K. See it? Zedek. You know what Zedek means in Hebrew? Righteous or righteousness. Mel- Melech, the first part of… See, look at the consonants, M, L, and we have CH. But Melech in Hebrew is king. So the author of the Hebrews tells us what does his name mean? It means King of Righteousness, but he was also King of Salem which is another description because Salem means peace. So this guy is King of Righteousness, King of Peace. What does he offer? His offer, he see, he's righteous, he's not wicked. His offer has nothing to do with greed, it has nothing to do with pride. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's an offer to acknowledge God. It's an offer to acknowledge that God gave you the victory and all these goods and everything that you have, they all belong to God, and if you have them, He gave them to you. It's called stewardship. Look at it. It says says it pretty clearly there in verse number 18. Uh, He goes forth and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, do you want God's blessing? Or do you want the king of Sodom's blessing? Abram has a choice to make and he chooses for God. Why is that? Well, again, it's a matter of faith. This guy may be able to give you some temporal recognition and he may be able to give you some temporal riches, but God owns it all. This is where I had those verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. If you believe that, then you can afford to be generous, and you can afford to acknowledge God. Every beast, God says, of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Where we were in Pennsylvania, we had a petroleum company called Thousand Hills. Every time one of those trucks would go by, I'd think of that verse. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. That's the God we serve. And you can trust him. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying you can. Well, he, so he chooses for God, and here's the commonality. Here's kind of the theme in these chapters. When does this test come? After victory. Verse 17, I go back again, point it out. After his return. After. You're going to learn from this. Just watch for it. Just as it's true that whenever you make a spiritual decision for the Lord, you can generally expect testing to follow. It's also true when God gives a great victory. That's when we tend to let our guard down. That's when we tend to get all you know puffed up and think, oh, I got this thing under control. And that's about the time that you start getting careless and trusting in yourself and boy, you're looking a, a, a testing will come. Sometimes if we don't keep the proper humility, the testing will bring us up short and remind us, Who really is the possessor of heaven and earth? It's God. So we have two stories, and what do they reinforce? What do they teach us? Lots of things, but this is my lesson today. Faith is a journey. It's not just a decision. It is a decision, but it's more than a decision. It's a life. This is the whole thing that Paul is... Telling the Galatians, you guys are so foolish having begun by faith. How did you get the spirit? By the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Now you want to continue in the flesh. Now you want to continue. It doesn't work. You begin spiritual life by faith and you live it that same way. But boy, that's easy preaching and hard living. It's difficult to stay on the pilgrim pathway, especially when the sights around us are so alluring. And we can and it should expect testing. The simple reason for that is because God knows that's what we need to grow our faith. I didn't say it. He did. I'm not standing in line for it. Neither are you. But unfortunately, it's how it happens. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or patience. Not patience so much with people, although that's true too, but steadfastness with circumstances. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Which, to read between the lines, is in effect to say that without that testing, we probably wouldn't grow into the mature Christian God really wants us to be. And so there you have it. Now, if you're looking ahead, will be in chapter 15, God willing, next week, and uh, that's an interesting chapter as well. So they all are, really, but I hope you'll be able to be back, and let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, you've been so kind as to remind us of things that we've known, uh, a lot of us, all of our lives, but it's easy to get away it's easy to preach this stuff to others, but when the testing comes our way, it's sometimes difficult always to see the right way. But you gave Abram great victory in these things. He, he passed both these tests with flying colors, and we pray that somehow we would be able to do that. We know there are other times, we'll see it again, we get to chapter 16, that there were lapses, just as there are in our lives. And Lord, if we have been lackadaisical about our, experience and been drawn away from keeping our eyes on you and walking by faith. Help us, Lord, to, to get, get and stay on that pilgrim pathway. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your attention.